0: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, no serious observers disagree that climate disruption, left unchecked, will mean disaster for human beings, among other species. Yet somehow, when it comes to actions that will either bring that annihilation closer or stave it off corporate media get very specific and procedural rather than putting things in a more urgent, more meaningful context. Hence the conversation around opening the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil and gas drilling. It's being reported as a Trumpian bad idea. Is that enough? We'll hear from Carlin Itchok, Alaska State Director at the Wilderness Society. Also on the show, People who think politics means pulling a lever every four years are wrong. Voting is a far-from-perfect connection of people to power. But, put crudely, if it didn't matter at all, why would some people try so hard to keep other people, those who have less power and voice in every other way, from doing it? On the assumption that voting does matter— and that voting in November 2020 matters a lot, we'll talk about how to do it and make sure it counts with Stephen Rosenfeld, editor and chief correspondent of Voting Booth, a project of the Independent Media Institute. That's coming up, and we're going to get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. There are more ways to make your voice heard than voting in presidential elections, for sure. But voting remains a primary means of societal participation. And organizing the vote can be a powerful tool for community engagement and education, with impacts well beyond electoral politics. Given that this is 2020, listeners don't need to hear all the reasons voting is critical. But given that this is 2020, we have plenty of questions and concerns about how to do it. Our next guest is engaged with that critical and evolving set of questions. Reporter and author Stephen Rosenfeld is the editor and chief correspondent of Voting Booth, a project of the Independent Media Institute. His most recent book is Democracy Betrayed, How Superdelegates Redistricting Party Insiders and the Electoral College Rigged the 2016 Election. He joins us now by phone from San Francisco. Welcome back to Counterspin, Stephen Rosenfeld.
1: Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, you have just written the 2020 Fall Voter Guide, How to Make Sure Your Vote Counts. And I would love to have you just talk us through some of the key elements there. My sense is that maybe the first thing is act early. Yes. Basically, people need to make a plan.
1: And a lot of people are beginning to say this now. We heard this at the Democratic Convention. But what making a plan really means is getting ahead of what's going to be bureaucratic crunches and bottlenecks, because the whole voting universe has been turned upside down by COVID. And what that means is that people are going to be unfamiliar with all the steps, including election officials and poll workers. So let's talk about what people really need to do. First of all, there's three ways you can vote, and you have to figure out which one is going to work for you. You can vote by mail, or you receive a ballot in the mail, then you can decide how you want to return it. Then you can vote early, which is at an in-person location, not necessarily a polling place. Sometimes it's a county office, city hall. And then there's election day, which is November 3rd, which is also in-person. And in all those cases, it's more important than ever not just to be registered, but to really, really make sure your registration information is correct, because if you're going to be voting from home, the ways that you're going to get that ballot and the way that that ballot is going to be vetted when it's returned, it's going to be checked against your address and the spelling of your name and your signature probably on your driver's license. So, you know, we can talk about this a little bit, but really it all starts with getting your registration information up to date. And you can check online in almost every state for that. And then it gets a little more complicated, the whole voting by mail thing. Do it. Here's the thing about voting by mail. East of the Rockies, before COVID, most states did not have high volumes of people. States like Florida, which were one of the highest, maybe had a quarter of the people voting by mail. So what does that mean? It means in most states you have to apply to, to get a ballot. Now, that's a separate process. That's a second application. Now, some states, there are a handful, like New Jersey and Vermont that are east of the Rockies, will be sending out ballots. So voters don't have to do anything except being registered. But in other states... You'll either be getting an application sent to you if you have registered, or if you have voted in the last couple of years, you'll get one. If you haven't voted in like three or four years, you might have to re-register or check your registration or update everything so you're not left off. And then yet in other states like Ohio, you're totally on your own. You've got to figure out how to get an application, which usually means going online and downloading it and printing it. So it's really a range.
0: It sounds like a lot of what you're saying is that different states are different, and so you can't just assume, like maybe you hear a news story that says, oh, there's going to be drop boxes. Well, that might not be in your state. That might not be applicable to you, so it sounds like there's really no substitute for kind of proactively informing yourself about what the particular rules and regulations and processes are for your state, and that better to do that early than to sit back and imagine it's going to come to you. When I talk to people
1: who actually are developing the apps that like the Democratic campaigns are going to be using, and a lot of people are going to be using, they say that the best information is your local county election office. You really want to deal with them. Mm -hmm. They say there are time lags between updating statewide government records and roles, you really don't want to deal with any middlemen. You don't want to deal with nonprofits, I have to say, and I work for one, that do voter registration and other things, because you have to make sure that the people who will be sending you a ballot or giving you one in a polling place have your information and it's correct. And you you know, can't not necessarily trust that somebody else is going to do it for you. Now, you're right. It really varies state by state, and within some states, it even varies county to county. So let me tell you about one thing that I've been looking at this week. And I can't get clear answers on this, and this is a perfect indication about why people have to be proactive and there's more work. In Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, the three final swing states of 2016, the application forms to request an absentee ballot in the primaries have multiple boxes to check on them. And some people just checked, I want it for the primary. And some people just checked, I want it for the rest of the year. And nobody can tell me how many people did either one. So that means that some people may have checked boxes thinking, oh, I got this in the primary. I'm all set. Or they did it in such a rush because the pandemic was breaking, they don't remember. What that means, that people, if they're going to want to vote by mail, they have to Go back and either update or confirm or apply again. It's a big pain in the butt. But this is a starting line detail. It's a small thing that has such big consequences. And this is indicative of the landscape we're in. And we can talk about other things, but really, this starting line is if you want to be in the game, it's not just being registered. You've got to be on tap, on track to get that mailed out ballot.
0: Absolutely. And just, you know, as people, it's going to be very frustrating to read on November 4th about chaos and the polling places and confusion. It's the story now about how to make it work properly or as well as it can and not something that we want to look back on, you know, after it's been a mess. What I'm getting is decide early how you want to vote and make sure your information is up to date. But one of the other points that you make in the guide is be ready to pivot, have a plan B, do your early thing, but if you get frustrated or thwarted, you can't give up. Yeah.
1: In the spring, the intelligentsia of the election policy world basically said, oh, everyone can just vote by mail. It's not going to be a problem. They didn't realize that a lot of people, especially non-white people in metro areas and urban areas, don't want to vote by mail because they want to cast it and see it taken and counted. They just don't trust the system. And in other places, people just didn't even talk about voting early. So what's happened now is there's been a little bit of a recalibration. But really, what people should try to do is think of Election Day as the last resort. So what happens is, like my parents in New York, when they did not get their ballots in time for the New York primary, what should they have done? Well, my dad, he didn't want to take the risk of going out because he's in his upper 80s. And that's really sad. And other people, you know, might be in that same kind of situation. You know, what do you do when your ballot doesn't arrive if you order one? Well, there are things to do. We can tell people about that later. But really, it involves showing up in person and having the right credentials. And that goes back to, hey, is your registration correct? Is it the address correct? Did they spell your name properly? Did you have a middle initial on the form or it's on your driver's license? Does your signature look like it looks on your driver's license? Because this is the kind of stuff in states where Republicans are going to get very finicky. They're going to use this to just try to disqualify or they're going to yell and scream about this. And the only antidote for that is to have everything be really orderly. So that's where we're at.
0: Well, COVID-19 was obviously a curveball, ham-fisted interference with the Postal Service, another, you know, curveball of sorts. But then again, we need resilience and responsiveness built in, you know, to our system. So, Looking forward, if we can take the liberty to do that, um, once we get through this, if we can take the liberty to imagine that, what is suggested to you in terms of substantive improvements to the process?
1: Well, everything that deletes or unnecessary bureaucratic steps from the starting line to the finish line, and we could list a lot of those. I mean, come on, states like California, Nevada, Utah. Utah is not exactly a blue state. Are mailing everybody a ballot. They don't have this ridiculous application process, which creates a ton of costs for printing, postage, a ton of manpower hours. It's just unnecessary bureaucracy. The same thing is true when it comes to people who don't get their ballots in the mail, they show up at a polling place. They have the same technology in Los Angeles and Georgia. In Los Angeles, they will check you in and take you off the list of getting a mailed out ballot and give you a regular ballot and you're off and you vote. In Georgia, they have to call the county election board to get permission to do that whole thing. This is just intentional. There are so many things like this that just slow things down. People leave. And that's, so, you know, it's just, do you want it to be an efficient, transparent process where technology works well? and you have paper and digital technology backing each other up? Or do you want to create these ridiculous steps and procedures that really uh, cause people to to turn away? These technicalities, they have political overtones and implications, and you know, they're not just technicalities.
0: All right, then. We've been speaking with Stephen Rosenfeld. He's the editor and chief correspondent of Voting Booth of the Independent Media Institute. You can find the Voter's Guide we've been discussing through their site, org. It's also online at nationalmemo.com. Stephen Rosenfeld, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin.
1: Oh, it's a really pleasure. Thank you.
0: With Arctic refuge drilling approved, focus shifts to legal battles and market forces, ran one headline, And it's true. The Trump administration's push to open the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil and gas drilling, reflected in a so-called record of decision this week from the Interior Department approving oil leasing in the refuge's coastal plain, is meeting with legal resistance. A number of environmental groups are ready to go to court to prevent incursions into the refuge, federally protected since Eisenhower. True also, Analysts question how popular leases will be, given the fact that the COVID-era oil market ain't what it used to be, and major financial institutions like Citigroup and Goldman Sachs have said they won't finance any development in the area. But what's lost if legal and market frameworks are the only ones we use to see what's at stake here or to tell the story? Carlin Itchak is Alaska State Director at the Wilderness Society. He joins us now by phone from Anchorage. Welcome to Counterspin, Carlin Itchok.
2: Hello. Thanks for having me today.
0: Well, to be clear, I have read a number of valuable and interesting political and legal accounts about the fight over the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. But I wondered if you could orient us a bit differently and talk a little about the meaning or significance of this piece of land and the life it supports.
2: Yes, absolutely. And what brought us to this conversation is that the BLM has recently issued a bad record of decision resulting from a fundamentally flawed final environmental impact statement. And what's significant about the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and the coastal plain, Janine is that the Gwich'in and the Inupiaq indigenous people who depend on the herd for their survival, and frankly, all of us, all of us Americans who have a stake in the public land in the refuge, deserve better.
0: Well, you say BLM, that's the Bureau of Land Management. Interior Secretary David Bernhardt, essentially the, the boss of that, you know, is, he's now going around saying well, Congress mandated this leasing process in 2017. We're just meeting our obligations, but it isn't as though Congress responding to the call of the people, you know, upended this decades-old policy of protection. How did this happen legislatively?
2: Congress was not listening to the call of the people. In fact, in a 2016 survey conducted by the Hart Research for the Center for American Progress, two-thirds of The respondents said that they oppose efforts to open the Arctic Refuge to drilling. A majority of Americans oppose opening the Arctic Refuge to drilling. And it was unconscionable that the Republicans hijacked the federal budget process and used the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act to force the Arctic Refuge drilling over the objection of the majority of Americans.
0: So they snuck it into the tax bill... And if asked about it, they'd say, "Well, yeah, all the all the resources that we get from it are going to offset these tax cuts."
2: Yeah, they snuck it in the dark of night and without following the public process.
0: Well, let's come back to that process just for a second. I mean, you sort of wonder why you have to do environmental impact statements for fossil fuel production. At all at this point. I mean, we, we know what the impact is of, of fossil fuel production, and it's unacceptable. But in this particular case, I take it your sense is that the review process, such as it was that the Bureau of Land Management did, was not thorough or was not substantive.
2: Right. It was not thorough and it was not substantive. And the timing was horrible, as you mentioned at the top of the interview that all of this is happening during the pandemic. And when the federal government was conducting the public process for the final environmental impact statement, they were trying to conduct it online and virtually. And many of the indigenous people who live in the Arctic or in rural areas in and near the Arctic Refuge don't have that grade of connectivity or unable to maybe participate fully And also, the timing is horrible because folks were focused on keeping themselves and their families and loved ones safe from this pandemic, which is adversely impacting uh, minorities, as we know, and and Indigenous people. Uh, So the timing was bad, and the process was completely flawed.
0: And as much as they had a statement. It didn't deny that there would be harmful impacts, it seems to me, as far as I could tell, but they sort of said, well, we'll limit the use of heavy equipment during the caribou's calving season. You know, it it just doesn't seem like it's at all taking seriously the idea that these would be harmful impacts.
2: That's correct. And the coastal plain of the refuge is the birthing ground of the porcupine caribou herd which helps sustain the indigenous Gwich'in and Anupak people who've occupied this region for thousands of years. And as we know, oil and gas drilling would have devastating impacts on this pristine and fragile ecosystem caused by the massive infrastructure needed, as you just mentioned, to extract and transport the oil. And this is a remote area of the Arctic, and drilling in the Arctic is very, very risky. Chronic spills of oil and other toxic substances onto the fragile tundra, and ice would forever scar this now pristine land and disrupt its wildlife. And as we all know, we're facing a climate crisis, and burning more fossil fuels, the process of flaring, and even introducing more fossil fuels into the economy and into the atmosphere would be counterintuitive, especially in the Arctic, where it is seeing most of the impacts of climate change. It would be like trying to put out a house fire by lighting the other side of the house on fire. It makes no sense.
0: As just a large, wild space, the refuge plays a role in mitigating climate change beyond itself, doesn't it, if you will, just because of the fact that it is a large, wild space?
2: Yes, in the time of the climate crisis, we need to be protecting large swaths of land like the Arctic Refuge and using them for the future preservation and mitigation of climate change and recognizing them not only for their beauty and important ecological value, but also the important sequestration value that they play in mitigating climate change.
0: Well, I wanted to say it isn't that in reporting indigenous communities are entirely unmentioned. Sometimes it feels a bit as though they're kind of tossed into lists, you know, caribou, arctic fox, indigenous people, you know, a a list of potential, quote unquote, obstacles, you know, to development. When those indigenous voices are included, they don't all say the same thing. I wonder what you make of an argument that I have seen that says that opposing extractive industry is actually the anti-Indigenous position, that it's that's for outsiders who don't understand that you know people in the region need jobs that the industry provides. How do you respond when you hear that?
2: Yeah, I think that uh, it's not lost on me that not all of the Indigenous people are on the same region when it comes to developing the refuge, and that's true for any issue. But you have to look at what are the interests of those people that are taking a particular position. After the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971, where Congress created 13 regional village corporations in Alaska, in the last 60 years now we've had a new type of development and ownership of these corporations, many of which are multimillion-dollar and billion-dollar corporations and some of them have a vested interest in the development of the refuge and that's created differing opinions and ideas on whether or not the refuge should be protected and so it's important to look at who is making what arguments and also uh, many of the indigenous people that do want to protect the refuge such as the Gwich'in Steering Committee led by Bernadette Dematte who's the executive director have been leading the fight to protect the coastal plain, which is the sacred calving ground of the porcupine caribou herd, and is so sacred that the Gwich'in don't even step foot on the calving ground. But then you have folks like Inupiaq elder Robert Thompson, who lives in Koktovic, in the refuge, and has been fighting for much of the last 40 years to protect the caribou herd and also the polar bears who are losing their denning with the snow and the ice melting. So there are numerous other Inupiaq folks and indigenous people who have been fighting to protect the refuge. And I think it's important to see what folks' motivation are and most of the indigenous people agree that we are in a climate crisis and that we need to do everything we can to mitigate the climate crisis.
0: And I think, you know, as folks in in other communities, just reject the the trade off, you know, of jobs for for nature. You know, we shouldn't be having to make that choice to begin with. It's too difficult a corner to put someone in. Well, I, I just wanted to ask you. Finally, I did want to note legislatively that I understand that the House has since voted to block uh, drilling in the refuge again, but the Senate won't take up that bill. So that's what's happening there. But just finally, you read that, oh, well, it's going to be tied up in court for years, and if drilling happens, it won't be for years and years. But that doesn't mean that we can be passive about it. It doesn't mean that, you know, exploring wouldn't be disruptive. So what are you at the Wilderness Society and other organizations doing to resist this It's just so backward-looking plan, and what can folks do themselves to get involved?
2: That's a great question. We're putting the pressure on the banks. We have, as you mentioned, five of the largest banks have decided not to fund drilling in the Arctic Refuge. We're working on putting the pressure on Bank of America to join that group. Listeners can do to help convince Bank of America and their board of directors to not lend any money for drilling in the refuge. That would be wonderful. Also, I would encourage folks to learn as much as they can about the issue and get involved locally. Community-led conservation goes a long way, even though you may feel far away from the Arctic refuge. When I was just up in the refuge a few weeks ago, I was there with the executive director of Audubon, and they're pointing out that over 250 species of birds migrate to the refuge. They come from all 50 states. And so we are all impacted by what happens in the refuge, not just through the birds, but also through the climate impacts. And so I encourage people to learn as much as they can about the issue. Contact your congressmen and women. We need to join together together and the Wilderness Society and our conservation partners are going to use every legal tool that we can to stop the oil and gas leases from happening.
0: We've been speaking with Carlin Itchok, Alaska State Director for the Wilderness Society. They're online at wilderness.org. Thank you so much, Carlin Itchok, for joining us this week on Counterspin.
2: Thank you, Janine. Much appreciated.
0: And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Erica Rosato. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin.